Hey everybody, you're listening to Top Quartile, where we bring you stories from the front lines of growth in community-focused financial services. Hello, and welcome to Top Quartile. Really excited to have Kim Vogel as the guest today. And so Kim and I have known each other for a number of years, leading back to when she was the CFO at Infoundry, which for those who may know, did some really interesting things in early mobile payments. So Kim, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah. So tell everybody about your background and what you're doing now, uh, the roles you serve on multiple boards. Currently, I'm doing a lot of public board work. I do a lot of project work as well, but I'm on three public company financial services and fintech boards. My first one was Tri-Counties Bank, which I'm on that board, a number of committees, audit chair there. And two of the more recent ones in fun stuff, Forge Global, which is a marketplace for trading private securities. And the other one is Triple Point Capital, which is a debt lender to private high growth companies and having fun with all three of them. The most relevant to your listeners, which is Foundry, which they were in the mobile banking and payment space. The kind of my sort of claim to fame with Foundry was everyone didn't understand why people would want to do remote deposit capture or mobile deposit on a phone. And being the CFO, I was like, guys, there's something going on here. Like, this is important. And it's not just you kind of depositing the one-off check you get in the mail to your account. This is big. And so anyway, I pushed that one hard and and clearly that turned out. I did a couple of other financial services companies, one called Base Venture, which is digitization of fund management, both M Foundry and Base Venture we sold to FIS, which I'm sure most folks on this call know who they are. <laughs> um Prior to that, just you know, other CFO roles. I was a professor at St. Mary's College for a while in the MBA program as well as the undergrad program, and then um, sort of in and then the early days um, CPA with KPMG, and then Wall Street research analyst with Montgomery Securities. That's my training ground. That's kind of my background. You know, we talked a lot about the professional background. What's maybe one fascinating personal fact that most people don't know about Kim? <laughs> I don't like to, I don't think of myself as fascinating in any way, shape or form. But as I talk to folks about sort of my professional history, I started out wanting to be a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. That was sort of <laughs> what I thought my profession would be. <laughs> Clearly, my path didn't go that way. And probably for the best, actually for the best. I don't know if I would have succeeded all that well over there. But in, in all seriousness, I'm one of those stories where whatever's happening next was not what I could imagine you know, a year or so prior. Um, And I just kind of follow the opportunities that present themselves. And when they sound really interesting, I go in that direction. And that's essentially served me really well versus a sort of predetermined plan because that never, never has gone well for me. So how did, we talked a little bit about Foundry. How did that background and the other things you talked about prepare you for what you're doing now, uh, serving on the boards for financial services related companies and banks? It's, it's really interesting because coming from the essentially startup world, getting something off the ground from nothing and stepping into particularly the banking world where it exists for decades. And and I'm lucky, Tri-Counties is a well-run machine. They've got great management. They've been doing it all for years. They're high growth. Everything's up and to the right. So I'm lucky there. But what being in this startup world, what that kind of really entrenched in me is the mentality of what next? How do you think about what next? And not what next as in next year, not as in you know, next month, but the things you can't even begin to integrate now. 
How do you understand what that is, where they're going, what that's all about? And I found in the banking world, I found that probably the most difficult. Everyone reads the articles and know what's going on, but there's this, our customers aren't ready for it yet. And more importantly, security is so important, making sure that we're protected, that any of the kind of new startup-y kind of concepts, they're just not hardened enough and tested enough. It's just going to be too much for our sort of platform, too much exposure, too much risk. I feel like my background has served me well of really pushing that thinking that you can't wait, right? Even if it's conversations, let's brainstorm, let's talk about it because how we ultimately implement it and who we implement it with may not even be what's available today. If I joined a company or did something that when I explained it to my parents, they actually understood, then it wasn't a good idea. They, they just they have to look at me with that sort of quizzical, like, what is that? I have no idea what that is. Then I was on the right track. So I think um, having a history of doing that again and again and it working out allows me the confidence to push that needle, if you will, in the boardroom. You know, what you're talking about, I think every bank wrestles with from my time interacting with bank boards, more from the executive side, risk managers and all those kind of things. So I definitely want to come back and and dive into that in a minute. You bring up an interesting point too of like the board, you talked about Tri-Counties being well-run. So a board by definition has a different role than management. And so how do you think about as a board member, where are those issues that you concentrate on, that you dig into versus how do you know essentially where to delegate or trust management to handle the aspects they need to handle? That's a real huge distinction that I think oftentimes, I don't want to say new board members, but some board members don't get because you were in management typically in the C-suite to get you to that position. So you've spent decades thinking that way where the board is an oversight role. You are not the doer. You are overseeing. And there was a quote I heard that's really resonated with me and I try to stick by it when I'm sitting down. It's like, what's a valuable board member? The answer this gentleman gave was someone who thinks about their approach with their professional skepticism with the appropriate amount of respect. Because you get some of these board members who want to dive down into the doing versus their oversight role or the gotchas. I got you. You're not doing it that way. I got you. And it's neither of those, right? In my opinion, it's you're overseeing and they're doing. But like any role I've had in my life, when your boss or supervisor or C-suite executive cares about something, you care about it more. As long as they're not sort of over and laugh filled, but we're all smart enough to not be <laughs> going there. So what is the what are the board members doing? They're caring about the things that matter. Um, in the banking world, it's acquisitive. You gotta be caring about sort of acquisitions. It's customer growth, it's loan growth, it's cybersecurity, all of the risks the board cares about. In, in a way that they need to be engaged. So one of the things I find most frustrating is when board meetings are structured where management comes in, it's scheduled for an hour or two hours, and presentations are scheduled for an hour or two hours. So you're just present, being presented to. The, the meat of it comes from the conversation, the engagement with the management team. And so if I'm a chair on a committee or when I'm talking to someone else about how they're organizing leave the last half hour to conversation, leave that half hour to communication. 
because when management, especially sort of one level down from the C-suite, because the C-suite you're talking to all the time, understands how much the board cares, then they care more. And when I say cares, it doesn't just mean, oh, what you're doing is important, right? The board is an interesting concept in that most boards have meetings four times a year, quarterly, right? And then they have earnings release calls in between. So I'm not going to count those because, okay, you go over the 10Q and the press release and such. But the actual board meetings, that's a lot of time in between. And everybody's doing different things in between. And so their heads is in a different space in between. And so what I really push, not only for those that I work with, but for myself, are dashboards. Because it calibrates really quickly what the history was, where you're at, where you picked off and left with. You know, when we're trying to, every year you're reviewing comp relative to whoever your benchmarking is and getting ready for the proxy. You haven't reviewed it in that level of detail for probably a year. But if I have my dashboard of what the key takeaways were a year ago, and I pull that up quickly, it's really just like the top four to 10 items, four to six items, four to eight items, whatever, that I can engage in the conversation faster versus trying to recollect whatever that is. And so the communication and the engagement is also knowledge. It's beyond just keeping current. It's being able to be real time with the issues at hand with that history that's sort of buried in board books and documents and you can't bring them back up. So anyway, that's sort of one of my tips that has worked is dashboards for myself that I create and pushing the teams on dashboards to understand where they're at quickly so we can actually set everyone. A board by definition is people with different skill sets coming together. So everybody's coming at it with a different angle and equipped with different information. So you got to level set that to actually advance the conversation versus spending the entire conversation trying to get people informed. That to me is a waste of time. Yeah. And that to your point about board books, that's, those could be valuable to send pre-information and have the repository. So what's on a good dashboard? You know, what's maybe the mix of financial information versus operational risk or customer? So I look at dashboards in two ways, right? There's a board book dashboard. And those are the high level metrics in each of the different areas of the operations and such that kind of describe where we are in just, and when I say dashboard, it's got to be a lot of information on one page, right? Like you can't have dashboards that are five, seven pages long. It's literally the snapshot. So someone looks at it, gets the information that level sets what's going on. On the comp committee, if you're looking at C-suite comp, it's not just the amount, right? What were the levers in terms of determining each of those pieces? On the audit committee, what are your main responsibilities? What internal audit is doing and your external auditor responsibilities? What are their fees? What are their fees for the last X years? What are the internal audit projects? What's the ongoing sort of piece of items that need to be remediated and where they're at, right? And a lot of this stuff is in the decks, but I don't know about the decks, you folks, but collectively for a bank, given how highly regulated, when all said and done, we're literally reviewing over a thousand pages for each meeting. And so surfacing up the high level takeaways that are from the board. And then for me, it's also my own personal sort of operational dashboard that is really what are the issues at hand. So what are the, you know, if we did an M&A, what were the five or seven key terms of that M&A sort of event? Because that's going to be in a year ago or two year ago board books on page 735. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well said. 
<laughs> so I, I think uh, particularly Trico, the bank, the, the tech team does a fabulous job of dashboarding out everything that's going on. There's what goes into each committee meeting and each board meeting for that particular meeting that's dashboard out. Then there's sort of the overall corporate one. And then there's my personal one. So I, when I say dashboards, it's not just one. It's how I can quickly be informed and ready at different levels, depending on the information and who I'm talking to. Yeah, that's a very helpful perspective. And, and so when you think about some of those issues that are tracked through dashboards and your experiences, what are some of the top kind of growth-related issues? Inflation is a big topic right now, and banks are coming off of a huge wave of liquidity. And what are, what are some of the, when you think about the metrics that give you an indicator on health, of the customer base are growth related. What are, what are some of the things that you focus on there? Those are all of the basic metrics, loan growth, deposit growth. You know, the part of me is biased because I was an equity research analyst on Wall Street for a number of years, right? They basically give you, here's what's important. If, if I'm an investor, here's what's important. And uh, so you really don't have to kind of think too far, just go get a couple of those reports. I mean, pretty much for any board I'm on, I read every analyst report that comes out about that particular company because they summarize it all for you. The management team does as well, but the research analysts are going to tell you what, they're telling investors what to care about. So they're then telling you as a board, which if your responsibility is to the shareholder base of the company, i.e. the investors, they're telling you what to care about. And if you're seeing something that they're, caring about too much or not caring about at all, that's when you as a board member go back to your CFO and CEO and say, whoa, guys, I think you need to spend some time with XYZ analyst because they're kind of going over here and we're going over here. Those sort of basic metrics, operating efficiency, growth, all of the key ratios, obviously very important. Honestly, I don't put too many of those on my dashboard because they come out every quarter and it's already done for you. Maybe I'll copy and paste you know, a piece of it in. Those are important to care about. Now, in terms of when I think of company growth and customer growth, and I think a lot of what you guys work on data is critical. I don't think the banking world has used it. Of course they use it, optimized it, right? Like haven't figured out how to optimize it. I was talking to someone in the banking world about sort of PFM, right? And, and, <laughs> there's been this sort of struggle where it sounds good, but when they actually integrate it into the platform, the actual usage isn't necessarily as high as what they assume it would be. And here's all of this sort of great stuff. But we, well, I was talking to one of the credit officers and the PFM capabilities embedded in the loan portfolio to help them analyze loans on an ongoing basis that was really underutilized, right? Like you can really get insight into what's going on with your customers and credit quality and such with those sorts of tools. You know, got to think a little bit creatively about what there is at hand, but understanding, you know, the sediment of the customers. We were, we're looking at one program lately and it was called Pulse. And I just loved that name because it's how do you keep a pulse on what customers want and need. And everyone's surveyed to death. So in my mind, this is a very challenging area because how do you keep the pulse without asking for a survey every X period of time? Everyone's used it now. Like how often do you just have to click delete because I don't want to fill out another gosh darn survey. So how do you want to know 
what your customers want and need. And how do you know it like Apple before they need it, right? Like how often does Apple introduce something where you're like, you're being told, wow, that's kind of cool. It's not the customer saying I needed it. That's a different mentality for banks to think that way. Yeah, it's really well said. And customer data is a passion of mine. I've spent a ton of years with banks and on the bank side and clients on that. And so to your point about insight is understanding customer attitudes. It's more of a progressive type approach, meaning trying to collect one or two key pieces of time, because like you said, customers don't have time to fill out stuff. And at some point that will lose its efficacy, just like surveys. But there's a lot of work around, you know, asking for hey, rate this experience and then tell us why you rated that. You don't need to ask a long survey to catch some really intelligent, actionable stuff, but analyzing that takes more work. Analyzing a survey is easy, tallying results, but that's more data. True insight comes from listening to customers. I worked with a really smart creative director one time named Paula, and she had this expression that I loved. She still uses it probably. She says, understand the need behind the ask. You know, that's what they should talk about in Apple. And really smart researchers will use a lot of different data points, observe, they have a sense of curiosity, but fundamentally they try to understand what is a, a customer trying to do, you know, and, and banks, if you think about it, we've been meeting us essentially the same fundamental needs for hundreds of years, but the way we do that is constantly changing. And that's where I think a lot of banks could spend, to your point, think through, okay, is there a better way to accomplish moving money, helping my customers keep liquidity, invest their money or borrow. Those are the fundamental needs. And, you know, some of what you did at Infoundry is a great example of coming up with novel ways, using new technology to accomplish age-old jobs. And you were talking about coming back to this. FIS and FISERV are sort of integral to the banking world, right? Like they pretty much service at some level, most everyone, maybe not everyone, but most everyone. And after selling two companies, I had my own sort of thesis. I listened to so many presentations where they talk about being so innovative, but the public construct provides a huge hurdle in the culture for innovation at any public company, right? Quarterly earnings, so on and so forth. What Pfizer and FIS are, they scale technology extremely well. They find something that's small that they think is going to get big and they can actually create the market for it. They can't originate technology very well because of that public construct. So frankly, if you are getting as a financial institution, if you believe you're staying on the cutting edge of the service offerings of Fiserv and FIS, I believe you're too late. They're scaling it and everyone else is using it and you're not using it as any sort of distinguishing aspect of your business because they're not going to be able to have the stuff that's unique to your bank, your credit union. They're offering that same exact thing to all your competitors. So then the challenge is how do you stay ahead of the curve on all of the stuff that hasn't reached them yet? And that's a bigger challenge, particularly with the resources and the construct of a bank or credit union. They're not technology houses where they're recruiting people who just want to do that. We were talking about, you know, banks by definition, need to be good at risk managers. They have regulatory requirements that are important. There are some razor-thin margins, highly leveraged, if you think about it from a 
I mean, one thing I talked to a chief credit officer one time, I said, most banks wouldn't lend to themselves. If you had a commercial business come to them, right? <laughs> and it's like, hey, I've got 90% debt, 10% equity. How about another loan? We wouldn't lend to them. So that's just our reality. So we've got to be good at risk management. How do banks be good at risk management, but also not let that err in the side of risk avoidance or sacrificing innovation where, you, where there's by definition some uncertainty? And that's where I think the board comes in, right? Like that is their job is risk management and the board's job is pushing. And what would help educate us and let us help educate you based on who knows what and where someone's spending their time as to always what's next and having those conversations and brainstorming. And yes, that once a year offsite strategy session is just the beginning, but how do you keep that current? And it not be, oh, here's what's on the horizon. Let it die until the conversation happens again next year, right? I come at it a little different because my risk tolerance, I've never felt that I was really a risky person, but I've spent my world in startups. So inherently, you're going out of business probably every nine to 12 months until you get the next round of capital. (laughs) So it builds the stomach a little. and, And so it's risk containment. It's okay. We must take this risk, but what are all of the mitigating controls and how are we containing the risk? It's not, you know, shooting from the hip. We must do this. We must do something X, Y, and Z that's on the horizon. And let's just think it through and make sure that it's surrounded by all of the, you know, I kind of find it funny that I'm sort of the one that comes from the fintech world. But I'm also, my background's an auditor and I oversee the audit committee and the internal audit. And so what is that control infrastructure to ensure that everything works? Make sure that's the wrapper and then take the risks. Banks are incredibly conservative and you've got a number of them who are very comfortable, not entertaining first mover advantage, fast follower, and a lot that aren't even interested in fast following. It's... <laughs> it's <laughs> <laughs> What is this fast that you speak of? (laughs) (laughs) It's something I'm sure everyone on this call has heard of. And Visa has kind of coined it with that 70% rule. If it's an important decision, you better make it when you probably have only 70% of the information. If you've made that decision and you're waiting for somewhere between 90 or 100% of the key pieces of the data that tell you to make the decision, you're already too late. I actually think that's an easier piece of that equation than the other part, which is you need to make the decisions, but you must course correct when you're wrong. By definition, you're wrong 30% of the time, right? Or X percent of the time because you will make the wrong decisions. But the real challenging piece is not to hang on and course correct rapidly. And that is very challenging because your passion pushed the decision to be made. And so how do you come off that quick enough? But I do find it a very important tenant to moving, particularly in the technology area ahead. And it's interesting. So I've talked to a lot of CEOs on the show and, of course, worked with some terrific CEOs at banks I've worked with directly as well as an employee and as clients. What's interesting is you can tell that the ones that freely admit that I've made mistakes and, you know, hey, I did this. I was wrong. Here's what we learned. It seems like those do a fantastic job of creating that culture of both accountability and I think you said it really well, by definition, there's going to be a minority of mistakes. And so, first of all, it's got to be a minority. 
you know, if you're going to make a mistake all the time, that's a problem. (laughs) 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 But just setting that tone of like, look, I am not claiming to be all knowing or perfect. I've made mistakes and here's what we've learned. That just really sets a really powerful tone at organizations, my experience. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it creates trust with the board, right? Like if you're walking in and talking about all of the accomplishments and everything you've done right time after time, that actually creates mistrust. When we were talking, going back to the very beginning of this conversation in the board's role, it's oversight. It's not diving in. But when do you dive in when there's a problem? Right. So if you want to keep bored out of the hair, (laughs) you create the trust. And I know it's easier said than done. We've all been sold to, right? Sold ideas, sold this. We know we're when we're being sold to. And if it's not balanced at some level and you're only hearing all of the, the good stuff and you're not hearing the problems and the learnings and what you did from them, you start feeling like you're being sold to and that creates mistrust. So it's a little counterintuitive, but to your point, if you're not sort of talking about the mistakes, I think you're damaging trust, which is imperative in the board C-suite company relationship. You can tell, to your point, you can tell when you're being sold to, but then also you can tell when you when somebody's shooting from the hip or you know being reckless or whatever. There's some experience there. So we talked about trust, foundational. What are a couple other sort of maybe key lessons learned or advice you would give to perhaps a a brand new bank executive or brand new CEO from the board's perspective? The communication piece that I was talking about to me is critical that there is, you know, no one wants to be surprised. Everyone knows that. But when you're on the leadership team side, you're dealing with stuff so rapidly and you've got so much coming at you. Unless you need the board decision, you keep going until you need it. Well, they're not then brought into the conversation. They're not brought into how long it took you to get to that point. I was in one decision-making process and the board was brought in late and they're just like, well, you need to go ask for, it was sort of an an acquisition-related topic. You need to go ask for this. X, Y, Z, dot, blah, blah. And you could just see the kind of key folks on the management team just roll their eyes like, you think we didn't already ask that 10 times and got a no 10 times? And, you know, we can't wave a magic wand, but we hadn't been brought through the process to know that those were the asks and there was a no and then there was a no and then there was a no. So the communication aspect, I think we talked about full transparency in terms of the, the good and the bad. And then, you know, depending on what it is, lean on the board, meaning you never want to make them the bad guy because they become the bad guy easy to employees or what, you know, the board told us we got to do this direction. But at the same time, they, they do need to be the bad guy sometimes and do that selectively and when it's necessary to get things done because their perspective does matter to deals and major issues. I mean, that's, that's kind of one of the early things you learn in any sort of leadership is you're not going to be able to solve all the problems yourself. And sometimes you need to get guidance or a decision and a CEO, the board is their overseer. So you said one thing I didn't touch on is as a new board member, there's, there is a window of opportunity that people really, it's kind of like getting a new job, right? There's a window of opportunity where people will give you the freedom to not know at a much deeper level. And every company, we all know this, 
Um, every industry, every company, every organization, they have their own language. It's their own acronyms, their own vocabulary, their own slang, their own jargon. And you know, make sure you look at that particularly first year as you get to ask the dumb questions. You get to ask, you have to figure out that language. And don't be scared to ask for the resources to do so because particularly in in financial services, banking in particular, the acronyms are immense, right? If you're coming out, and and part of a board is you you don't want a board full of all bankers. You, You need a few of them, but that's the essence of a board. You're coming from different industries. So just make sure you take the time as a new board member to learn the lingo because it's deep. And if you miss it, then it's hard to catch up on the conversation later. You've had a ton of experience and a number of different perspectives. If you could go back and sit down with yourself, uh, maybe just coming out of business school and give some, uh, any, any advice to your younger self based on what you know now, what would it be? Well, the problem is I still have to give myself the same advice, which is just relax. Like, <laughs> it's all gonna be fine I don't think I could have understood how well the path would be because I couldn't see that path and like I said earlier it doesn't unfold itself until it's ready to be unfolded so you're never going to know it but relax and, and have confidence that it will I can give that same advice to myself today and so I'm not so sure age brings all the same wisdom but that would be the advice I'd give myself. Kim, great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on and talking to us today. Very fun. Thanks for having me. That's it for today on Top Quartile. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Top Quartile wherever you find podcasts on any podcast app. And while you're at it, we'd really appreciate a five-star rating. And if you're interested in getting an opportunity assessment, head over to infusionmarketinggroup.com to learn more. Thanks for listening.